This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The technical, where they capture certain bleak moments in her death, especially the last expression on that, it was like a tear coming down from her face as she's laying flat against the linoleum and then like time stopped. Welcome to episode 107 of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers and see if it still plays to today's generation. I'm Mark Netter, filmmaker and instructor at the Los Angeles Film School. I'm co-founder and CEO of Electrocast Media. I'm David Tausick. I'm in the Writers Guild and I'm on strike, but I can do this. I'm Jake Flowers. I'm a student at the Los Angeles Film School and I'm interested in costume design and image consulting. I'm Guy Lewis, also a student at the LA Film School, and I love movies. I'm Anne Michelle. I'm also a student at the LA Film School, and I'm a social media and artist manager. This past week, we watched director Alfred Hitchcock's groundbreaking 1960 suspense horror thriller Psycho, written by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by Robert Bloch, and starring Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Gavin, and Martin Balsam. Our story begins in a Phoenix, Arizona hotel room where Marion Crane and Sam Loomis have just ended a lunchtime tryst. They discuss how their money problems are keeping them from getting hitched. And Marion, a longtime secretary at a real estate firm, seizes the chance that afternoon to steal $40,000 in cash, driving out from Phoenix on her way to where Sam lives in California, intending to reunite with him. But as her guilt mounts, she finds herself driving in a torrential downpour and seeks refuge in an out-of-the-way motel called Bates Motel, which is run by young Norman Bates, who is also the only caretaker for his infirmed mother, the two of them living in the mansion up on the hill behind the motel. Norman brings dinner to Marion, and they have a conversation that actually leads to Marion deciding to drive home and make amends. But as she steps into the shower to clean up after all that driving and maybe wash away her guilt, actress Janet Lee stepped into cinema history with arguably the most famous death scene of all time, when Norman's mother stabs her to death and Norman returns to clean up mom's mess. (laughs) First question I have for everybody, is there anyone here who saw this movie for the podcast for the very first time? I did. I did too. Oh, Whoa. Two. Good. Two. All right. First person I'm going to go to here is Guy. Guy, you've heard about this movie over the years, I assume. Yes. Like, I knew it happened. It, it, nothing was a surprise. But that's because of this movie's effect on pop culture, from the screeching of the violins to the shower scene itself. Everything about this movie was already, it's already been spoiled. It's like pop culture is spoiled psycho you know okay so then the question is even though you know so much about it did you find it effective what was your initial reaction when you saw it and what do you think today i thought it was great like the pacing the constant raise of the tension there's a reason why they say alfred hitchcock is a master and this is one of the uh 
films that shows that. Was there any particular scene, knowing so much about the movie already, that hit hard with you? The getting pulled over by the cop scene, you know, that that had so many layers. Like being a woman alone on the road and then getting woken up and then being a first-time criminal. Well, I don't know if she's a first-time criminal, but she she doesn't seem very good at it. Yeah, she she did a lot of things that didn't seem smart. But then, like, all of a sudden, she wakes up, and there's a police officer right there with her. And then she drives off, and then the cop's still behind her. And then she has a brilliant idea. Well, I'll just go to a car dealership and switch cars. And the cop's there the whole time. I just really like that part. That's, like, the only thing that I did that wasn't spoiled. So, like, I really drilled down into that scene. And it just rose that tension to a really nice level. So when she pulled into the Bates Motel. Yeah, it's almost a relief when she pulls in and then you just don't know what the hell's about to happen. And Michelle, had you also had much of this movie spoiled by pop culture? The shower scene, like I knew she was going to get killed, but I didn't know anything else, anything about the story, anything about the plot. So it was a really nice surprise in general. Like I don't watch a lot of movies, you know, and I always fall asleep watching movies. So the fact (laughs) that this just get me on edge all the time, like that tension just never goes away. And I think that's part of the magic. And then, of course, the plot just keeps changing. I thought it was going to be him first. You know, Wait, you thought it was going to be Anthony Perkinson's uh, character, Norman Bates, that was what? The the one who the killed killer. Her? Yeah. And then it was a mom, but then it was him, you know? So it's like, it just kept changing and changing and changing. So I really liked it. And the music, like, it's just really well done. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate for listeners, this movie came out in 1960. It is literally 63 years old. I hate to admit it, but it came out the year that I was born. So there's going to be some spoilers. But I got to say, myself having seen the movie like a dozen times, I swear it it always hits. Uh, Jake, this was not your first time. When was the first time you saw Psycho? Shortly after my mom had forced me to watch The Birds, Mm. and I was terrified out of my wits and was afraid of birds after that. And then became really intrigued with thrillers. And I had at a really young age read the book When a Stranger Calls. Mm -hmm. And that made me really interested in this genre of film. And then my mom and I watched Psycho. And I was just enthralled with Janet Leigh's look. And then became sort of obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock shortly after and just his whole body of work. So I think when I first watched it, I was probably like, 10. I was pretty young, probably too young. (laughs) When I was 10 years old, and that was 10 years after the movie came out, it was still considered a forbidden movie. It had a reputation. This is before the 70s with real slasher movies came in that were all inspired by Psycho to some degree. But but David, was that true for you too? Because you're in New York, so you guys were a little hipper. But like my movie scared the hell out of me. Are you kidding? So first of all, this movie is still rated R. Mm. And the fact that he was able to make a movie that today is rated R in 1960, while the Hayes Code was still in effect, it's, you know, it's mind boggling. It was such a game changer and such a shocking film when it came out. I mean, by the time I saw it, you know, 15 years after it was made, it was still shocking. 
So Jake, I want to get back to your psycho experience. You're 10 years old. You see psycho. <laughs> Have you seen it since then? Or is this the first time you've seen it since then? Do you watch it yeah, over and over? I, yes. It's one of those ones that I just love to watch over and over and didn't realize it was a book inspired by true events, which I'm sure we'll discuss more about. And then started kind of obsessively researching the true events that inspired the novel and how Hitchcock got his hands on the novel. I've watched Psycho, Vertigo, and The Birds obsessively since I first saw them. Well, we're in the same tribe because (laughs) (laughs) I've seen those movies so many times. Mm -hmm. And so this time watching Psycho, were you struck by any particular scene? Like the scene with the toilet, that being the first seen in American cinema with the toilet in it kind of blew me away, which is so silly. First and scene with also, a with a working toilet. Yeah, the first yeah. scene with a close-up of a flushing toilet because there had been toilets in other movies. It so. wouldn't draw attention to him though. Right. Like no one would yes, sit on the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and understanding as an adult her motivation to steal the forty thousand dollars. So when I was younger, I was like, what? Why is she stealing the money? I don't get it, you know? And she's risking it all to bail this schmuck out and ends up getting killed. You know what I mean? I'm like, girl, come on now. What are you doing? I mean, he is insanely handsome in the scene Ugh. with his shirt off at the beginning, right? I mean, she looks fantastic. He looks Don't fantastic. Don't even get me started. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I heard that Hitchcock was really disappointed with his performance and, like, had a rude name for him on set and just thought he was, like, a hottie with no acting chops. Uh, but yeah, I, I love John Gavin, and I loved him in Julius Caesar as well, another steamy one. I could kind of agree that Gavin's not great. but I mean, right. so Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, and Martin Balsam particularly, but also Vera Miles, are really in this movie. I mean, they get it, and mm-hmm. they're amazing in this movie. And he's just kind of, he could be in any movie doing yeah. doing that. I think the one thing I like is the the use of black and white is so strong in this movie and his hair kind of really matches Anthony Perkins in terms of like that super, but his hair is like almost darker than Perkins's. And it's, mm-hmm. so I want to ask Anne-Marie a question since you're the woman on the panel and the movie opens with a very strong female character. She starts off kind of being like a sexual object, but very quickly takes charge of the situation She's really driving the conversation about them having to get married. And then, of course, she takes the action of stealing the money from this older Texan with a big hat. He's putting the make on her and trying to impress her with his money. So I think to some degree, we don't completely blame her for stealing the money because we think this guy's a jerk, right? I wonder how much you feel like her behavior kept you sympathetic with her, even though she's committing a crime in the first half of the movie. I personally didn't feel bad for the guy that she stole from because that first scene when they're together, they just look so perfect. But I did feel bad for her because I feel like it just speaks to the savior's complex that women have so many times and in general with men that it's like you're so in love with a guy that you're just trying to solve his money problems like that's his job first of all and you are trying to do it for him you know so it's like um it just reminded me to like this part of women that when they're in love they just want to fix the guy's life so bad i understand her motivation but i also think that it's a problem that women have in general you know what did you want to have happen to her? Best case scenario, they just stay together. You know, I feel like we all want to see. Even 
at least in movies, you want to see the couple like falling in love and being happy. And we like to see crimes and, you know, a crime committed by, by a beautiful woman that it's, I mean, it's not harmless, but it's not like she killed someone or, you know, like she stole from a very rich guy. So uh, it could be worse. (laughs) (laughs) What about the part though, where it looks like she's going to go back, give herself in, give back the money. Did you want her to do that and then not be with the guy? Yeah. Well, I felt like I wanted her to do that because at that point, I thought that the guy that she stole from was going to kill her. Jake and Guy, did you ever think that she'd be able to get away with it? No, she was caught. Once her boss saw her driving off, she was done. Bad move. You know, it's just like... There's no way. But I mean, we're also used to an age that has internet and cell phones. I mean, back then, people could disappear a lot more easily. The fact that it was so far-fetched and she just, in a fit, went and did it anyway speaks to her being so madly in love. But I really believe that he always wants to infuse the female characters with as much complexity as possible. I think he did that purposefully. There's this logical side of her that's like, this is so stupid. And then I think the fact that she gets killed for it is sort of what Anne Michelle is saying. Like, look, you can do all this for a man, but girl, you're going to get nothing out of it. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, her reputation is never salvaged, right? Mm -mm. They did find the little piece of paper in the toilet, but um, I don't know if that's going to save her. Uh, Here's a question that I have. And every time I watch this movie, I look for the moment where she makes the decision to steal the money. Mm. And I can never find it. When she's talking to the guy, she might be making the decision then. But she just plays it incredibly cool. This is a guy who's essentially sexually harassing her, like on the border of that, right? And she just barely moves. She wants to do it when she says, I'm going to stop by home. I have a headache. She's giving herself a way to get home, pack her stuff, get the money and go. So I think because it's so swift, there's no moment where she's sitting there like, okay, I'm going to do it. And this is my plan. It's also setting up that vibe of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just running away with this money to get my man, you know? And she's questioning herself the entire time. That's why the scene when she's driving off and gets pulled over is so nerve wracking because she's not even sure of herself. Interesting. Any other opinions on that? Who's the both voiceovers? Where she's driving and like, I think there was two, right? There's the one she was leaving and then one right before she got to the base. And I think, to answer your question, it was the first round of voiceovers with the first time she was in the car. Uh, if I'm not being a total idiot, I could be wrong. I no, 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 I think you're right. There are two voiceovers. There's one where it's less guilty and then the next one's more guilty. Yeah, I think she decided the first one. You know, the one in the car where she imagines the boss saying something and she looks kind of glum while she's driving. And then she imagines the guy she stole from saying, I'm going to take it out of her pretty little flesh. And when she thinks that, she smiles a little. You know? Yeah, yeah. that's the moment. <laughs> right. She's happy. She's like, I she... did the right thing. Yeah. yeah. But I think she decided when she was talking to the guy, I think that behind her eyes, like while she's just holding that impassive face, she's like, fuck this dude. Oh, no, she's decided already. But what I'm saying is that she's excited by the idea that that guy is going to want to kill her. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's like she gets a little bit of a thrill out of it. And in the hotel, Norman Bates says, you know what I think? We're all stuck in our little boxes and we can't get out and we scratch and claw, but, you know, we can't get anywhere. And then she kind of says, I know what you mean. 
And so, you know, part of her stealing the money is her trying to get out of this box she's in, going to work and having this sleazy affair in her mind. A little sleazy. It's an escape. You know, she's trying to escape. So she has this conversation with Norman and there's a lot of bird imagery. This is where the bird stuff comes in. And the next movie he does is the bird. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole idea of birds of prey, Norman is sitting there, there's birds above him. And she goes into her room and was it before or after dinner that Norman looks through the peephole at her? After. After. So that is such an interesting moment, right? I hated it. Especially because of the way he looks. Like boyish charm. I'm like, he thinks he's a little kid. This is a grown man staring at this woman. But interesting fact, the painting that's covering the hole in the wall is of a woman bathing and unknowingly there's a man watching her behind a tree. Ah. That makes me not like him because at first you don't know who he is. He's charming. And then he does that. And then you're like disgusted by him. I was really surprised about how charming and well-mannered and likable he was until he just kept talking, you know, like the longer he talked, the more and more you tell he hadn't talked to people in a long time. And so uh, (laughs) I was was shocked about that, you know. Again, I feel like he's just one of those very true scenarios of real life that the most charming guys are usually like the worst and have a hidden agenda in a lot of ways. So I felt the same vibe that at the beginning, I was like, oh, he's so nice. He's bringing her dinner. And you know, as a woman, I feel like that's just such a harsh reality because I mean, at least I like when men like do these gestures for me, you know, like bring me dinner, like, but then also I question them, you know. This brings us to the shower scene. Can anyone name a more famous death scene in the movies? I, I don't think there is one. Uh, Santino Godfather. But number number two. Still. There's people that have dissected this. Supposedly, they've come to the agreement that it's actually 60 shots. Um, mm. Janet Lee said it was 70 setups. Whether that's true or not, who knows? I think they took six days to shoot it. Is that right? Yeah, like a week, I think. It, they said it was a third of her sheet time. Hmm. It's about two minutes long, and it took a week to shoot it. It's crazy. Now, here's my question for Guy and and Michelle. Knowing this was coming, having heard about this forever, what was your reaction? Was it still shocking? Well, okay, so you saw it coming, and I knew it was going to happen. For me, it was just well done. And they must have spent a lot of time on this part because you didn't see any breasts. To me, it was more about appreciating the technical way that they did it how it seemed believable and how they captured certain bleak moments in her death especially the last expression on her it was like a tear coming down from her face as she's laying flat against the linoleum of the floor and then like time stopped you know the camera actually comes out of her eye but it's dissolving in from the swirl of the shower drain so the shower drain mm. swirling in her retina, I guess, or her so uh, crazy, yeah, her pupil, mm-hmm. and the camera pulls out, and she doesn't move. It's uh, well, actually, the camera rotates around the same way the swirling water does. It's really beautiful. Yeah, wow. that was a really, really interesting. It has some really good choices. I'm disappointed it wasn't as much blood, though. I thought it was gonna be a lot more blood. <laughs> I think they did I as much as they could for the time. Yeah, yeah, he was lucky he got away with what he did. I mean, it yeah. was really. 
And you never know. see the knife touch her body. You never mm-hmm. see the knife touch. Her never body. see the knife touch her body. Never really see him interact. Ah, woman. You know, when they shot it, the knife did touch her body, and this is before the MPAA rating system. So what they had then was what they called the Hayes Code, and there were a lot of crazy rules in the Hayes Code. And one of them is you couldn't see a knife actually touch skin. So he had put in those shots, but they made him take them out. But he did a lot of things that the Hayes Code normally wouldn't allow. And I think it's just because of his great reputation. And, you know, people were getting tired of the Hayes Code. It was getting a little out of date by 1960. It started in 1934. There's something that feels very modern about the movie. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's shot very 3D compared to a lot of movies at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really struck by the shapes and the way the characters move. You know, the camera will move and the characters will move larger and smaller in the frame and you've you kind of feel like you're there and and it also has like a slight documentary feel without being flat have you seen dial m for murder in 3d yeah yeah oh my god i have to see that it's kind of cool so the big shot for me the money shot is when the woman's being killed she reaches out towards you like help me help me and then you just sit there and the hand goes right towards your face in 3d and you just ah. sit there watching because you're an audience member and you don't do anything. And it really makes you feel guilty. <laughs> Which is what I think Hitchcock's doing here. I think he's implicating the audience. You know, we saw Norman looking through. We got to see the nude woman through the picture or the semi-nude woman. And then I almost feel like the way she's looking at us, even though she's dead, is like an indictment of the audience. Well, and before she dies, she reaches out literally towards the camera and the camera just pulls slowly away like, Sorry. Hi, girl. No help for you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price Priceline. Okay, so Anne-Michelle, you had never seen this. You had heard about the shower scene. Was it shocking? Was it not as shocking as you expected? It was better than I expected. I mean, I knew it was going to be good, but I just thought that it was going to be good because of the idea of, like, you're in the shower. But the first thing that surprised me was when, because I thought it was going to be towards the end. So when we got there that fast, I was like, wait, what's going to happen next if she's getting killed? And then, I mean, the entire sequence, the way she's showering and how much she's enjoying it, her facial expressions, how she's even like making noises. And then the shadow. Oh, my gosh. That part is like (laughs) when you see when you see that someone is walking in, you know, for me, that was like the end of it. I was like, oh, my gosh, like that was so terrifying. (laughs) And then. When the curtain of the shower drops, you know, like, and then her feet, boom. Like, it's just so well done. And then I think after that is the drain. So that part was just really, really, really well done. Were you guys surprised, though, that the main character died less than halfway through the film? I was, yeah. I wasn't. (laughs) You've seen it since you were 10 years old, so, you know. In my research, I found out there's a phrase for that. This is called the false protagonist. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Now you're thinking yeah. about the stories you're going to write, right? Everybody? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Not just that she's a false protagonist. It's that you, know, you identify with her really strongly, and he forces that on you in a lot of ways. And then almost immediately, you're identifying with Norman because you don't know that he killed her. And, you know, he's there trying to help his mother clean up the bathroom. And this thing about the act of cleaning up the bathroom, they show every little detail and you're like, hey, you come on, you missed a spot. It's very methodical and he does a great job, you know. And so really quickly, there's a new main character. And as the movie goes on, you start to realize that in a lot of ways, they're similar. You know, it's almost like two sides of the same person. And there's this schadenfreude kind of thing that Hitchcock has where he loves to show split characters. I mean, Norman himself is a split character. He's a split personality. I just want to say the shower scene caused my mother, when my parents moved into a new house, to get glass shower doors because she couldn't have shower <laughs> curtains after that. All right, I have to say this because this is one of my favorite anecdotes about this film. The film was really inspired by a film called Le Diabolique, I guess. And my French isn't that good, but... There's like a bathtub scene in that one, right? Yes, right. It's about a murder, and these two women murder a man in a bathtub. There's no question that Hitchcock was influenced by it. And Robert Bloch, who wrote the novel for Psycho, said that Le Diabolique was his favorite horror film. So Hitchcock got a letter from a man complaining that his daughter uh, stopped taking baths after she saw Le Diabolique. And now that she had seen Psycho, she wouldn't take showers anymore. Wouldn't take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> so Hitchcock wrote him back and said, Send her to the dry cleaners. Yeah. <laughs> Sad. Sad. That's but so can funny. you imagine watching that moment where you've seen her off to the side and then the shadow comes in and you're in a movie theater where the screen is 50 feet high in 1960 and have never seen anything close to this in your life? No, I can't. And it's crazy because, like, I just saw it. For this, you know, so I encountered a violent situation in the street. Like I had to call the cops on my neighbor, literally, because he was abusing his girlfriend. So I was all paranoid because after I called the cops, I realized he was my neighbor. So now I'm all paranoid and I'm home by myself a lot. And one day I was taking a shower and this is a few days after that happened. And I thought I heard a noise and I literally got out of the shower and went to the kitchen and grabbed a knife. <laughs> And went back to my bathroom. Yeah. After this movie came out, it was a meme. People were afraid to take showers. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It's like Jaws making you afraid of the ocean. I had a babysitter who told me about going to see uh, the birds. And they walked out of the theater and someone threw a dead bird off the roof in front of her and the, the, the guy she was with as a gag. And I wish that had happened to me. That's so funny. <laughs> so let's get to the second half of the movie. And this first part really ends with Norman's cleanup. And the last thing we see in this section is when Norman is dumped Marion's car, which contains the money. You know, we're following the money too. She's got all this cash. It's wrapped in a newspaper. He doesn't know it. He's tossed it in the trunk. And as the car is going down into the swamp, it stops for a moment. Do you guys remember this? Mm-hmm. Guy, were you rooting for Norman? I was, it was, it was, I started laughing, you know, because like, <laughs> it was funny. So the way his expression was, he was like, <laughs> like, there's nothing he could do about it. Jake, let me ask you. So, where are your emotions at this point? I'm with Norman, even though I'm like, you just killed my girl. I'm like, 
damn, I don't want him to get caught somehow. I got tricked into wanting him to get away with it. Hitchcock is so good at implicating us and making us want things we shouldn't want. Mm -hmm. So now everything changes. We fade out and we fade up and Sam is writing a letter to Marion saying, I've decided you should just come and live with me in the back of the hardware store where I'm trying to make enough money to pay off my dad's debts and pay my alimony. Please, honey, come. And at that point, her sister shows up looking for her. She's heard from the boss and she's very upset. And Sam's like, wait, what do you mean? By the way, Sam is kind of like adult the whole time. He's always the guy who's saying, don't go there. Don't do anything. And, you know, yeah. he's kind of adult. And then a detective shows up, played by Martin Balsam, the great actor. I feel like he's the first father figure we've seen in the entire movie. And that's really significant. Uh, we know who the mother figure is. And, uh, she, you know, so now this detective is on the trail of Marion for her employer and the money and all that. And at this point, he kind of becomes the plot driver for a little bit. Right? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think I clocked it at about 10 minutes. I may be wrong. And let's just be clear. There are three big shocks in this movie, and the shower scene is only the first one. Mm -hmm. So what are you guys thinking when Arbogast shows up at the Bates Motel and starts getting a clue? Speaking of the word clue, if you've seen the movie Clue, the detective shows up to this house where everyone's getting killed. (laughs) <laughs> and you're like, not another one. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And at first, I think I was hopeful that he was going to catch him. But then he goes back to the Bates. I'm like, you're done for, dude. What's the one thing he does that's different this time and that he takes us someplace we haven't been yet? Into the house. <laughs> Either he's going to get killed or he's going to know what's happening. So at the moment when he climbs up the stairs and we get that incredible overhead shot, of the mother coming out with the knife. I mean, yeah, what- at that point, I know he was going to get killed. I think that I was more thinking about her, like, what's her motivation? Why is she doing this? Like, what mental illness she has that she's just compulsively killing people? You know, that's what I was thinking. Like, what's wrong with her? Did you want her to get caught? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't have empathy for her. Honestly, I was like, girl, you, yeah. And I also at that point, even when Norman was cleaning, I was kind of rooting for him, but not really. I was like, it seems like he's done this before. I was already thinking like, he doesn't really look that shocked. Like he looked shocked, but not overly shocked, you know? So at that point I was already like, is this just like a murder family? How, (laughs) How many times has she done it? Like, what was the dynamic, you know? Guy, what were you thinking? I mean, was this something that you were as aware of as the shower scene? No. After the shower scene, like, you know, some more people got killed, but I didn't know the order, right? So at this point, I was trying to guess who was going next. But I didn't think the detective was going to get it. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought it was going to be the sister, maybe, or the boyfriend. But once he got up the stairs, I knew that. It was a wrap. But then, again, another funny scene happened. The whole... When he's flailing as he's falling down the stairs? I wanted to give it respect. But it it, it took me out of the movie. I was was laughing. Oh, it took you out. Yeah, it kind of took me out. Well, you know, how many times has this been imitated? I mean, this is probably the first slasher film ever made, as far as I know. And how many slasher films have been made since this? Uh, I don't know, thousands, right? And... People have built on the technique and all that. 
But I think he does it in a really unusual way. That shot of Arbogast going down the stairs is very strange. So I think he's going for a feeling of creeping you out. Mm. Like we mentioned the toilet. I think the point of seeing the flushing toilet is like, well, you're not supposed to see that. So already the audience is feeling uncomfortable because mm-hmm. you don't see that in movies. And it's the same with the way Arbogast is killed. It's a very weird angle. It goes from this really wide shot, which is an overhead. And suddenly it's like this close up of his face and it's slashed and bleeding. And that's part of the shock. You go from yeah. this objective shot to this very, very subjective shot of him suffering. And then the way he falls down the stairs is totally fake. What they actually did, I think, is attach a camera to his chest and going down the staircase is like a process shot in the back. Yeah, he was actually on the type of office chair that you can kind of swivel back and forth on. (laughs) Yeah, right. And they pushed him while you saw in the background this staircase. Now, Jake, you're laughing. And so I'm trying to figure out what was your take on that? And I'm I'm sure you felt differently about it when you were 10 versus watching Mm -hmm. it now. But how did it affect you this time? When I was younger, I was afraid, like, he was falling back. Like, even though I know he's already been stabbed to death, I'm like, oh, that's going to hurt when he falls. But then as an adult, when I watch, it's less funny that he's falling in such a weird way and more like, what the hell is going on here? It's kind of disturbing. It is grotesque. And the last thing we see is actually just the knife hand in the air over the mother's Mm -hmm. wig. Right. And the sound of his body being pierced by the knife. Which was apparently a melon. Probably, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's when it became the standard for all Foley men to use melons when people are stabbed. And that's where we get to the climax and the biggest shocks of the entire movie. Um, She goes upstairs. She sees the bedroom. She sees an indentation. This is like one of the creepiest things. The indentation in the bed where the mother's been sleeping. Lila makes her way back downstairs, comes into the cellar, and sees the mother sitting in a rocking chair facing the wall. And as she approaches her, she touches her and the chair turns around. <laughs> and Michelle, what was your reaction when the chair oh, turned no. around? Oh, no. Like, I was shocked, you know? That was like a great turn and very creepy and disturbing. And at that point, you're like, okay, he's a psycho, literally. You know, like, that's when you're like, oh, my gosh, it's him the entire time. Like, what, what are you feeling about your mom? Well. It's her desiccated skeleton, of course. And then as Norman comes in dressed as the mom in wig with knife and as yes. she's a, about to kill the time I was like, yes, girl, go. <laughs> that horrible wig. Like, <laughs> Jake, you wouldn't happen to wig. have been rooting for Norman at that yeah, point, Yeah, I was like, you? yes, slay. Take her out. <laughs> like, this would make a great drag show, actually. Uh, yeah, so, oh, that would be good. <laughs> that's a brilliant idea. Can I say something about Anthony Perkins? Because I think it's interesting. So he was a teen idol, right? And Paramount decided he'd be the next James Dean. And they gave him a $15 million contract, seven-year contract. It was a big gamble. And his queerness started showing after a few films. He was going around town with Tab Hunter, and they were boyfriends. And the studio was like, oh, no, our teen idol is gay. Um, and so they, they got panicked and they started putting him in these romantic leads, which were wrong for him, opposite um, Jane Fonda and Audrey Hepburn and Sophia Loren. And he said, I don't want to be a teen idol. I want to be a serious actor. I mean, shades of Dustin Hoffman from our first podcast, right? Midnight Cowboy, where he was, as Benjamin Braddock, going to be a teen idol. That's what the studio wanted. 
So he dated Rudolf Nureyev and Stephen Sondheim. Um, one thing is he married Barry Berenson, a woman, and they had two kids. And Perkins died at 60 as a result of AIDS. And his wife, Barry Berenson, died in the 9-11 attacks as a passenger on Flight 11. Oh, my, oh God. my God. Yeah. Tragic end. Um, but here's what I think is interesting. Fun I, have fact. To, I have to read this quote. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's crazy. <wasn't> it? <laughs> what a so, fucking life. Jesus. Well, he had an interesting life. By the way, Hitchcock was furious that he wasn't nominated for Best Actor for this. It's crazy that he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, but that performance has, performance. like, I mean, that performance has historically lasted. Yeah, he didn't win the award. Right. We got, well, you know what I think of them anyway. But okay. So Perkins had an absent father who was an actor, who's always traveling. And so here's a quote from Perkins. He says, I became abnormally close to my mother. And whenever my father came home, I was jealous. I loved him, but I also wanted him dead so I could have her all to myself. And his father did die young, and Perkins felt really guilty after that. Oh, um, man. He said, I was horrified. I assumed that my wanting him dead had actually killed him. For years, I nursed the hope that he wasn't really dead because I'd see him on film. It was almost like he was alive. He became a mythic being to me to be dreaded and appeased. So he was this was the role for him. For this role, <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, that's insane. All of this, too, like, and the subject matter, the real truth about Ed Gein. And if you want to do your own research about all the horrible shit he did, and like how he was obsessed with his mother, it's just really interesting how this all came together. Jake, what is it? Can you tell me the, the inspiration? So the novel is based on true events, loosely, about a man from Wisconsin called Ed Gein. A lot of horror and serial killer stuff is based off of his story. But basically, he was really horribly abused by his mother, psychologically, sexually, physically, as a child. And he definitely had some sort of learning disability, for lack of better terminology. And he was like severely traumatized as a child. So all throughout his life, he was just really strange. And then his mom died and he was left alone in the world when his mom was like the only person he really knew or spoke to ever. And he became this like town quack sort of, but he was really trustworthy to the townspeople. So they would let their children be babysat by him. And he would like mm -hmm. paint their houses and mow their lawns and stuff. And then he would always know about the local crimes that were happening and no one questioned why he knew where he would go to bars and be like, I know where she is, that missing woman. And people would be like, whatever, he's crazy. Come to find out he had murdered several local women that people knew and had chopped up their bodies and made a skin suit out of it Ugh. and had his mother's head and all this horrible stuff. But when he was interviewed by the interrogators, he just came clean and was like, I don't remember killing anybody, but I know mm -hmm. that I when I wear their skin that he could convince himself that he was going to become his mom after she had died. He was so obsessed with her. So the newspapers weren't telling any of the graphic details because it was the 1950s. Yeah. So the original author came up with all this stuff he had just made up about him wearing his mom's clothes. And then after he had written the book, found out how many parallels he had accidentally drawn between Ed Gein mm -hmm. and his character, Norman Bates. Yeah. And he said 
he couldn't look at himself in the mirror because he was like, how did I think of this? There's something wrong with me, you know? And in the book, Marion's head gets cut off in the shower Mm -hmm. by Norman. And Hitchcock, who had put $800,000 into the movie, decided he wasn't going to do that. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, Yeah, it was a smart move, though, I think, to keep it as calm as it was. I mean, I would say it's calm from nowadays standards, but back then, like, it was kind of groundbreaking because it did have mixed reviews. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like... Oh, yeah. There's so many movies that have referenced Psycho, Mm -hmm. but... At that time, I don't think the populace felt that it was as important as it is. Yeah. I mean, Guy, did you have anything else in your research about the reception of the film you wanted to share? Well, all I could find was like these reviews from critics, and they would say that it was too gory or it didn't hit the mark or something like that. But I, I didn't come across like any protesting news articles. That's what I was kind of looking for to see if people were lining up outside the movie theaters saying, don't see this movie. They did have lines around the block because Hitchcock, again, kind of breaking the norms, had made a rule. uh, And and he did add saying this. And and even there were standees of him saying, no one is admitted after the movie begins. I think I've just always really idolized Alfred Hitchcock. And then when I was doing this research, I found out some really damning stuff about his character. He anonymously purchased the original story from the author. First of all, he lowballed him. He was like, I'll give you $7,500, knowing it's freaking Alfred Hitchcock and he's so rich, but wouldn't say who it was because he knew that they weren't going to go for it. And the guy was like, I feel like I could get a couple thousand more. So he told his agent, no, ask for 10. And the agent was like, they're offering 9,500. We should take it. And then they were like, no, we'll give it to you for 9,000. And he took it. And then later found out that Alfred Hitchcock had purchased the rights and was making it. And then he got no proceeds, which is not abnormal. But I think it was just shitty to be like, anonymous about the purchase, I think, made me question his character. I agree with that, but just to balance out a little bit, I want to say that Hitchcock made this film for $800,000, which was a very, very low budget, especially for him, because he had made gigantic pictures before. Mm -hmm. And the studio didn't want to make it, so they didn't give him the money. So he paid for it out of his own pocket. And he was really nervous about this film. Even in post-production, he was thinking at one point, I'm just going to make this into an Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV special because this is never going to fly as a movie. Mm-hmm. It was only when he heard Bernard Herrmann's music with the movie that he suddenly got convinced, okay, I can release this in theaters. Mm-hmm. So he was nervous he would lose everything, actually, that he put well, into this movie. Did. But you're right, he was very rich. I mean, he got 250 grand a picture. He convinced the studio to let him make this on the grounds that he was going to use his own crew from the TV show. And he waived his own salary. The actors were really minimally paid. And he decided it would be in black and white because it would be more affordable. But he just really gave all for this, which makes me like it even more because he really believed. I also heard a story from his assistant. Someone pitched the idea to him and he was like, okay, it sounds interesting. Then he flew to London And once he got there, the stands in the airport all had the book. It was like blowing up. And he called home to his assistant and was like, you have to read this freaking book right now. And she read it. And then he called again and was like, we're going to make this a movie. 
and then made someone go and buy as many copies as they could find in the store. So no one could figure out the plot, which I thought was so crazy and funny, classic him, you know? But yeah, those were... Yeah, just to talk about where Hitchcock was in his career. So he'd been making movies for 40 years and his previous movie to this was North by Northwest, which a lot of people, it's their favorite Hitchcock movie. It's got the incredible crop duster sequence, the Mount Rushmore sequence. It's the most fun Hitchcock movie, and it kind of was like a template for James Bond movies in a weird way. So it's not my favorite Hitchcock movie, but to go from making this studio-approved blockbuster to making essentially an outlaw film or a disreputable film in a disreputable genre, because horror was a disreputable genre, it was only for low-budget, cheap scares or monster movies. To do that was like a huge risk. I mean, a crazy, crazy risk. It was a passion project for him. Yeah, and I think I want to believe that because he was so interested in like psychoanalysis. Yes, he was. And that was in the public consciousness so much in the 1950s and 60s was psychology and the way the human mind worked. I'm glad you brought it up because um, here's my theory about psycho. So it's called psycho, right? It's not called psychopath. It's called psycho. I think it's a psychoanalytic journey. The first shot is you're up in the air in the sky, and then you see this window, and you go into the window, and suddenly in one shot, you're from there into this very dark little room. And there, these two people are acting out this emotionally fraught scene, but they're kind of repressed, sort of stilted, right? They're talking about a very emotional subject, but neither of them is emotional in that scene at all. Mm -hmm. So that's weird. Then when she's driving in that car, it gets more and more claustrophobic until finally it's like she's nowhere, off the grid, off the world. She dies and this other character takes her place. And you have this whole psychodrama that gets revealed. And what's the last shot of the movie? Does anyone remember? Oh, him saying, I wouldn't hurt a fly. Second right? to last shot. The last shot is the car being dredged out of the swamp. Oh, yes. Oh. Right? Yes. So to me, that's like... It's this whole that, cycle. Yes. It's this journey into the dark inner mind. So I think he had a very sophisticated idea of horror. He made a lot of films with the theme that we have ghosts haunting our past, but they're not ghosts like horror movie ghosts. They're actual people whose influence is still around and we can't escape from it. So, you know, Vertigo and all these pictures are about, you know, even Sam in this movie, it's like, oh, you know, my wife, she divorced me and I can't get away from it. And then uh, obviously Norman's the same way, right? His mother is haunting him, mm. but it's not supernatural. He's being haunted psychologically. But it's funny, it is a haunted house story. You know, yes, it's it got the classic horror thing with the haunted house, but it's actually being haunted by Norman. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Right. So the last scene of the movie, it's the part that people kind of made fun of a little bit, especially when I was in college. Lila and Sam are sitting in the police station with the judge and the psychiatrist, who we have never met before, played by Simon Oakland, explains for about four minutes what happened to Norman and that he's had this transference, that he's a transvestite but not really a transvestite, that he's had a complete psychotic break where his mother is really in him now and is completely in control of his mind. And we cut to inside of Norman's cell after he has the blanket and he's wrapped up. And it's actually an odd shot. It is like a peephole shot where we're kind of looking through a peephole at Norman and the camera is slowly zooming in. It's almost a little soft. 
And now we've got the voiceover of his mother, sort of like a counterpoint to the voiceovers that Janet Lee was hearing of all the different people making her feel guilty earlier in the movie. And the mother is now Norman. And at one point, she sees a fly on her hand and she says, I, I would never even hurt a fly. You know, I'm not dangerous. Why are they keeping me in here? And Norman smiles. And Guy, I think you were about to mention this. There's a very brief superimposition of a skull, mm -hmm. which, you know, you his miss sometimes. Skull. It's his, his mother's skull. skull. And then as that dissolves through, it dissolves through to Marion's car being pulled out. And at this point, the money being retrieved, the end of the MacGuffin as Hitchcock called it. And the movie ends like that at that point. So here's my question. Were you guys happy to have the explanation? Like, does it give you a chance to breathe before the final kicker? Or were you just like, hey, let's just get on with it? Egg drone. I could have done without it. Would you have wanted like nothing or maybe just like half? Uh, I don't know. First of all, we didn't really know who that guy was. So he was like, hey, surprise. Now I'm going to monologue for a little while. Yeah. So I wasn't invested in who that guy was. If those words came from the sheriff, I think I would have cared more, but it just kind of killed it for me, you know? Did it come back for you when you got to see Norman one last time? Yes, it did. That shot of him being superimposed is pretty well known. And you've seen it like a lot of different places from comic books to TV shows. I agree with Guy because I think that scene's a drag. Obviously, it's... Let's explain it to the people in the audience that didn't get it. <laughs> but this isn't an art film. This is the most popular film he ever made. So probably a lot of the audience needed that explanation. And I, I don't think that Hitchcock would have ever had the sheriff say that. The sheriff was kind of a dunderhead. Mm, the simple man. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like he said, I don't believe in ghosts, you know, and he, that's the thing. He's not getting it. There are ghosts there. He just, he's too literal. And Hitchcock didn't like cops at all. I think in 2023, I heard that whole spiel from the psychiatrist in a completely different way, especially with all the modern verbiage we have and understanding of gender expression. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that people still use the word transvestite. I think that is no longer in vogue to say that. And my queer brain was like wanting to know more about his gender expression. In the current times, it added fascination. And I think that people who were transgender were seen as disgusting and they were othered and misunderstood. And I think that that added to the disgust surrounding Norman Bates, mm. which is sad, but I think it speaks to the time that because he was like this cross dresser, he was so much more psychotic and scary. And part of the book was also that people were really, really fascinated by the fact that he was wearing women's clothing, which it was just like, why do you care about that? And not that he's murdering people. Yeah, right. Very interesting yeah. take. And Michelle, how did you feel about the ending there? Where my head went as soon as he started speaking was like setting the tone for, is he guilty because someone that commits a crime and they have a mental disease. They can be not innocent, but absolved of certain guilt. So that's where my mind went. Like, where's the line? Where's the line of like, how much is he deciding to do versus not, you know? So I feel like it was interesting to put that explanation. That could be a defense, right? That could be the mm -hmm. mental illness defense. And yeah, 
I remember earlier seeing it, thinking more the way you were thinking, like, will there be justice? Mm -hmm. At this point, I don't believe that there's justice anymore. Don't you have the feeling at the end of the film, like it doesn't matter what they do with him? He's in his own little prison, wherever he's put. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching it at times in the past and just thinking like, okay, come on, let's get through the sequence. It just would bore me, right? It almost felt like a blot on the movie, making it imperfect. This time I was enjoying myself so much and I was still so shocked. I mean, I got to tell you, you know, the shower scene when the skeleton flips around, that stuff still shocks me. And I've seen this so many times. So I appreciated having a little off ramp Mm -hmm. where I could still be in the movie for a while, but my blood pressure could come down. Yeah. Um, David, we've gone pretty long over here, but I know you did some research on Alfred Hitchcock, and I don't know if you wanted to hit a couple high points or anything like that before. Yeah, I won't go through his whole bio. Anyone can read that on Wikipedia, so I don't need to do that. But why did he become the world's most famous film director? Because that's what he was. And to me, there's a few reasons. I mean, there's the dark humor, which is in every film he does. He's hilarious, but in a very, very macabre, dark way. And that became his image. And there was this technical virtuosity that right from the beginning, from his silent film, The Lodger, with the glass ceiling, he was always innovating technically. And it's because he wanted to tell movies visually, manipulate the audience with photography and sound, but not with dialogue and really not even with acting chops. He was a technician, an extraordinary one. And he loved to experiment. He did so much experimentation while making really popular films. They're not art films. He appeared in a cameo in just about every movie he did. He got a TV show in 1955, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So he became a big personality and he kind of milked it. And then the cherry on top was when the critics from Cahiers de Cinema, the really influential French magazine run by the critics that started the French New Wave as film directors, they declared that Hitchcock isn't just an entertainer and a great craftsman. He's America's foremost auteur, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what really elevated him to this level that very few directors, you know, I can name like three American directors maybe that are at that level. So despite never winning an Academy Award for Best Director, he's still probably synonymous with film directing. Mm. Mm. I agree. Um, I just want to try to find a way to sum up why this movie has been so enduring. We know why it was shocking at the time. We know how influential it's been. We know how great the craftsmanship is. But I always want to know, thematically, is there something going on here that's really hitting people? I feel like it's the peak behind the shower curtain, the peak through Mm -hmm. the wall. This movie is all about sexual guilt. And it starts off being a heterosexual couple Mm -hmm. who are not married, and they doesn't feel quite right. And then she steals the money and the guilt level goes through the roof and she's stealing the money so she can be with him. You're not hitting it completely head on, but you are getting this peek behind the curtain of the passions that are driving people Mm -hmm. at at this time. And then Norman's sexual guilt is over his attraction to his mother. And as we know from the backstory, a man shows up who starts to take her heart and Norman can't have that. And that kind of leads to his whole spiraling guilt situation. Don't you think he also has guilt? I mean, he's attracted to Marion. Mm-hmm. He's been emasculated. He's looking at her, but he's not going to do the deed. He's just going to kill him. 
Because the thing that mm-hmm. his mother gets triggered is like, you know, dirty, unclean, you know, other women can't touch, which again is a form of guilt. You know, I also think there's some weird kind of lingering homosexual undertones to some of the mm-hmm. scenes. And to me, it's strongest <laughs> in the scene where John Gavin is basically kind of bullying Anthony Perkins. We've got these two handsome guys in great shape with black yes. 50s hair, you know, that perfect like hair and a lot, <laughs> some makeup. I mean, am I wrong? It almost oh, fuck no. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think even as a kid, I was like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Are they going to kiss? Tension. Yeah, I'm like, please kiss. But also like, why is he being so mean to him? It was almost playful too, because he's trying to distract him from the sister. I think subconsciously I didn't realize it until I was a bit older and watched again. But I wonder what Hitchcock's relationship was to Anthony Perkins, not in like a sexual way, but if he knew his woes and was trying to build this character out for him that he could be expressive in and maybe have the public understand him in a different way. Yeah, it's another way that he was perfect for the role. I mean, from what I heard, Hitchcock didn't listen to actors very much because yeah, he's every like, actor wants to beef up the role or have more emotion or whatever. And he's like, I've planned this whole thing out. Just <laughs> hit your mark and say your lines. But with Perkins, he really let Perkins bring a lot of things into the movie. So it was Anthony Perkins' idea that he would act like a bird and eat like a bird mm-hmm. after Marion's death. And so Marion, you know, is a bird, right? Her name is Crane. She's in Phoenix, which is a bird. You know, bird is the English slang for woman. Mm -hmm. And then he becomes the bird. He says, you eat like a bird. And then he eats like a bird later on after she's dead. That's the thing, that combination of giving us a peek behind the curtain, but Mm -hmm. not taking us all the way there and only really gratifying us with violence. Mm -hmm. Right? It kind of, we we can't handle it. So it's got to be like an obliteration. Mm Of some sort it speaks to humanity for sure. You couldn't even show a married couple in the same bed, but you could show people being murdered. But the question is, why does it still stick today? And I think part of the reason is that he's really touching on human sexuality in ways that yeah. am I wrong? I feel like no, lust, you're so right. You know what lust makes you do, really? Lust and then also this carnal human thing about death and our interest in it. And like mm-hmm. the macabre. All right, guys, I think it's time for us to do our recommendations and ratings. So I'm going to start with David this time. We have a four star rating system where you can do half stars. Basically, anything three, three and a half, or four stars is an A minus, an A, or an A plus. But you have to be careful with your four stars. It has to be a movie that you would literally put into your top 30, top 40 movies of all time, maybe touched you in a personal way. So there's no shame to add three stars or three and a half star movies are all great films. And then you get to the B's below that at two and a half and two, and we won't bother going further down. So David, I think you should get the first shot and also say who you would recommend this to. If you had asked me this a week ago before I watched it again, I think I would have said three and a half. It's not my favorite Hitchcock film. You know, it's one of my favorites. But now I'm going to say four stars for sure. Because looking at it again and researching it a bit, I mean, it's so audacious. It's such a tour de force with a minimal budget. It's still one of the greatest horror films ever made. And there have been so many horror films made. It's hard to make a great horror film. And also the courage in pushing against the censors, which he was always doing. 
But here he just took it to the absolute max. I mean, you couldn't have gotten away with more at that time. And I think he broke through for all the other filmmakers that started making films in the 60s. He made what happened in cinema in the 60s possible with this film. Um, not just because it was so great and not just because he did it, but also because it made so much money that the studios had to let down their guard. I just think it's so important. So for And you'd recommend it to? Uh... I'd recommend it to certainly any Hitchcock fan. I'd recommend it to anybody who's interested in the slasher genre, not the sadism that you see a lot. Like, I don't like the Saw movies because to me, they're just sadistic. But I do like Nightmare on Elm Street and other films that have more of a theme to them and that go into the awful stuff that you don't want to think about and that's sort of horrifying to you. That I do like. So I'd recommend it to anyone who likes films for that reason. More than just body horror. Guy, I'm going to you next. Well, Psycho has been like a big part of my life and I just saw it for the first time, you know, <laughs> last week. Isn't that crazy? You know, I like, like I, I could have told you the plot of Psycho before last week. I can give you dozens of references, but now that I've seen it, I, I totally get why, you know, it's been around for a long time. I didn't get any of the sexual overtones, so I'm about to do a rewatch, but, um, I mean, as far as shot choices, and then you said that it was a budgeting reason why they went black and white. But if you'd asked me, I thought it was an artistic choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sometimes black and white makes such a matter pop. And I think it did in this instance. So for me, uh, I'm going to give it three and a half stars. And you would recommend it to, well, you say everybody should watch. Everybody every should watch every movie ever. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to go to Jake now. Jake having a history of this that goes back to when you were 10 years old. Mm-hmm. How do you land today on your rating for Psycho? It's an absolute four for me. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think the big, huge Alfred Hitchcock films are all in my top 30. Another one that I'm thinking of right now is Rear Window. Rear Window, oh, yeah. Rear Window. Uh, oh, so good. And you know, when I watch this movie, it doesn't startle me anymore. And it doesn't scare me. It feels comfortable to watch. And I put it on and I hear the soundtrack and I'm like, it just feels good. You know? Which is crazy because the subject matter is so dark. <laughs> I'm worried now, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> Call me Norman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I know what you mean, though. I know what you mean because you've kind of gotten used to it and the storytelling and... Maybe part of the comfort is knowing you're in good hands. Yes. And I think to what you were saying about how Alfred Hitchcock was more than a director, he was a household name. I have a list of questions that I would want to ask this man. I just feel that affinity towards him and his craft. And this movie definitely changed the way that I watch movies even and the way that I look for hidden meanings. And so it's an absolute four for me. And I wouldn't recommend every movie to every person but this one i would recommend to almost everybody even people who don't like horror films because there's such a discourse and conversation about humanity within the film outside of it being a slasher movie to me it's like a conversation about the way we feel and so i would recommend it to anybody and michelle your first time watching um, it. Yeah, I would sh- like also do a four, honestly. And I think that's a lot to say. Yeah, because I 
I don't watch a lot of movies and I fall asleep through a lot of them. Mostly if they're like old. So the fact that mm-hmm. this just had me on edge, you know, like all the time. And it's just really beautiful to watch too. I mean, even though it's really dark, you just feel attached to it. Like you want to watch it. Even though it was scary, the visuals were just really beautiful. And I love plot twists. And this had one after another one after another one. And again, I do like dark movies, you know, like Jordan Peele is one of my favorite directors and he's very psychological, dark, scary. So I love that. And I would recommend it almost to anyone that wants to go to like that dark place. You talk about how pleasurable it is to watch. And I just want to mention something about Alfred Hitchcock's wife, Alma Reville, who worked with him from the silent movie era. That's how they got to know each other and got married and whatever happened in their marriage over the years. And Hitchcock was a little bit of a weird repressed guy. Um, the fact is they had a really successful relationship creatively and she was very often the script supervisor and he did a cut of the film and showed it to universal execs and it was a disaster. And yeah. she took charge of the editing and re-edited it and yeah. turned it into what it is today. So yeah. They, yeah. Big props. I'm glad you brought that up. Just like Star Wars. And like Mad Max Fury Road, where George Miller's wife took over the editing and wouldn't let him in the cutting room because his first cut was such a disaster. I love Fury Road, by the way. I did not know that. Wow. I also got to say, it's just a shame that we didn't have time to talk about the music and Bernard Herrmann. Uh, My favorite. Oh, the music. Oh, man, the music was great. Oh, my gosh. All strings, no horns, nothing but strings. George Martin says that Psycho is the inspiration for the strings on Eleanor Rigby. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay, so I don't think it's going to surprise you guys. This is a four-star movie for me. It was the beginning of a a video that my friend Greg made for my bachelor party was the opening of Psycho. Nice. That's how well he Mm. knew me. There are four Hitchcock movies that are my favorites. Psycho, Vertigo, Rear Window, and Notorious. And Yeah, those are great ones. And I could have gave you that list. Oh, that's awesome. And I think that I think Psycho and Vertigo are always battling for best in my mind. Because mm-hmm. um, they're both so great. Vertigo at least has color, so maybe that gives it the edge. But my older son loves horror movies. And when he was like 12 years old, he made me take him twice in one year to the Arrow Theater to see Psycho on the big screen. Wow. And both times I was completely engrossed and completely shocked at the shocking moments. So <laughs> No diminishment of pleasure, definition of a classic. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. Guy, you usually do our averages, and I think this is like uh, a four-star. Well, it's uh, because of me, it we're at three and three-quarter stars, but uh, we, we can round it up if you want to. Well, we're at 3.8, right? This <laughs> It's a yeah. four, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been great. Psycho streams on Turner Classic Movies and other services. It's going to keep popping up over and over again. Uh, Psycho just doesn't go away. If you like our show, please tell your friends to rate and review it so others can find us as well. Generation Film is an Electrocast production. Executive producers are myself, Mark Netter, and Peter Rafelson, my partner at Electrocast. Our producer is David Tausig. Our editor is Marcus Campito. I want to thank all of our guests, Jake Flowers, Guy Lewis, and Anne Michelle, and of course, my co-host Dave Tausick for another great episode. 
please join us for episode 108 when we will be covering Ridley Scott's feminist road movie, Thelma and Louise, and see how it plays for a new generation of movie lovers here on Generation Film. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast.